First Corinthians chapter one. First Corinthians chapter one. We're going to continue our study on the gospel, and tonight we're going to consider the folly of gospel preaching. The go- folly of gospel preaching. Let's pray. Father, as we get a chance to look into your word again tonight, we pray that you would challenge our hearts, uh, specifically with the gospel and the type of message that it is and the type of response that it requires. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Everyone in Israel must have been amazed to hear that the shepherd boy David was going to fight the giant. He was a youth. He wasn't a trained military man. He had no armor. He had no sword. He had no shield. All he had was a sling. And he had the mind to refuse any other means of defense, any other means of offense. His plan was to appear on the battlefield with only a sling and five stones. That would seem foolish. Well, in our study of the gospel, we come to 1 Corinthians 1, where we have learned that those who are perishing consider the gospel to be foolish. They write it off. It's not that they object to hearing the fact that they're sinners, but instead they believe that the very heart of the gospel itself is foolish. And the heart of the gospel is the cross, that Christ was crucified. We see that in chapter 1, verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. However, look down at verse 21. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So the gospel preached is the power of God bringing salvation to everyone who believes. We know that from Romans 1, 16. And we have studied this in depth but I want to read you 1 Corinthians 1.21 from the King James Version. It says this, It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Now this is a literal rendering of the Greek, whereas most of the modern translations, all except the Net Bible that I could find, they interpret the word for preaching as referring to what is preached not preaching. And the difference between those is the delivery versus the content. The gospel is the content that is preached. Preaching points to the delivery of that gospel context. In the context, we can see that the message of the gospel, Christ crucified, is the focus. That's the main point. And commentators make that point repeatedly. The cross is considered by those who are perishing to be foolishness. However, tonight we do well to consider the literal rendering and the choice of words available to Paul for this verse. You say, why? It's indeed true that the cross is considered to be folly. But it may be true and taught here that the divinely prescribed method of communication is considered to be folly as well. Preaching. Preaching is one of of a number of terms that are used to communicate the gospel, and we've seen those. We could turn forward to chapter 15, and we'll recover what we've already seen there. Perhaps we struggle because of the many terms used in communicating the gospel, the many ways they're translated, um, but we'll see them throughout chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 1, it says this, 
Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. When it says I preached to you, that's the word euangelizomai. Paul brought the good news to the Corinthians, and that comes up again and again. When it says that I would remind you, that's the word to make known. Paul made the gospel known to the Corinthians. You go to verse 3, and it says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That's the word for tradition. Paul passed the gospel along to them. But then you go down to verse 11, and it says this, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. That's a different term. That's the word that comes up in chapter 1, verse 21, as a noun, and then as a verb in verse 23. This is where it is the preaching that is considered foolishness. Now, what is preaching, specifically according to this term, which sounds like crusoe, it's Russo, but what does this term mean, preaching? It's talking about heralding. Now, given that we live in a modern age of technology, heralding is something of the past. We can get electronic updates in a moment, or in years gone by, there were printed posters to get news out. But the, thing, the, the idea of news by word of mouth is something of the past. This is how it had to be years ago. When you had an official who had a new law, for example, he would get a person who would get the word out. That person would go to a public place. He would stand up. He would raise his voice. Hear ye, hear ye. And that was his job as the herald to announce exactly the message that he was given. That's the term in 1 Corinthians 1 for preaching, for heralding the gospel. It's a messenger with a message delivered with authority in a monologue. One person speaks and everyone else listens. The closest thing I could think of today is a GPS. Turn right. Stop. You're going the wrong way. Turn around. It's a one-sided conversation. (laughs) Preaching is like that. It's heralding. And I'm going to use that term tonight so that we make sure to to recognize that preaching is a certain kind of delivery of a message. There are other ways to talk about communicating the gospel, like bringing the gospel or making the gospel known or passing it along. But preaching indicates a certain style of delivery, heralding. Heralding the gospel is the main way the communication of the gospel is described in the scriptures. It's not the most common because the idea of bringing the gospel, that term for preaching based on the word itself, euanglizomai, that comes up more often. But when it talks about heralding the gospel, it's used in very unique ways at very important points in the scriptures. So first, heralding was what John the Baptist, Jesus, and the disciples did. They all heralded the same message. You see this in Matthew 4, 3, and 10. They all preach the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the term there is heralding. It was an announcement. It wasn't an open forum. There was no debate. There was no discussion. This is the message. And once Jesus had done this in one place, he said, well, it's time to go to the next town and herald there. Mark 1 tells us that. So we have John the Baptist, Jesus, and the disciples heralding. 
Then when we get to the Great Commission, heralding the gospel is set forth in the Great Commission. Mark 16, 15, Jesus said to them, go into all the world and herald the gospel to the whole creation. Luke's, uh, Luke's Great Commission, chapter 24, repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be heralded in Jesus' name to all nations. And that is described in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24, as well as what Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. The gospel that you heard, which has been heralded in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. So heralding the gospel is extremely significant. And it's part of what we find in early church history that we find in the book of Acts. So Philip, he heralded Christ in Samaria, Acts chapter 8. Saul would be Paul heralded Jesus in the synagogues throughout the book. Peter stated the apostles were commanded to herald to people that Jesus is the God-appointed judge of the living and the dead, Acts 10.42. And the very last verse of the book, it says that Paul heralded the kingdom of God, chapter 28, verse 31. So what we can see is that heralding the gospel is the common way of communicating the gospel. But we are aware of another way of communicating the gospel that's quite popular given our modern apologetics. There has to be dialogue or disputing or debate. See, Paul didn't just herald the gospel as he went from place to place. He dialogued. And in 10 of the 13 times the word comes up in the New Testament, it refers to Paul. Let's deal with the other references, the other three references that don't. The first one comes up in Mark chapter 9, where the disciples dialogued about who was the greatest. They disputed. They dialogued. Jude chapter 1 verse 9, Michael and the devil dialogued about the body of Moses. They disputed over it. And then you have in Hebrews 12, 5, An exhortation is addressed or dialogued to them as sons. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. So that's God's word to his children. So sometimes when we see the term for dialogue, it's a hot term, dispute. Sometimes it's a warm term. So sometimes it's contentious. Sometimes it's comforting. But when we get to Paul, we read what Luke said eight times in the book of Acts that Paul dialogued with different people in its missionary journeys. He did it in Thessalonica, in Athens, Corinth, and in Ephesus, probably most popularly in Ephesus because of the Hall of Tyrannus, chapter 20. And he did that with Jews in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he did it with people in the marketplace, whoever they were. And according to chapter 17, verse 2 of Acts, that was Paul's custom. It was his custom to, to dialogue. Strangely, Later in the book, Paul is speaking to Felix because he's been falsely accused by the Jews, and Paul stated that he never dialogued with anyone or stirred up the crowd or in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Now, it would seem from all the other references to Paul dialoguing everywhere that Paul's lying, but Paul is specifically talking about his time in Jerusalem. And it's strange as you read through the rest of uh Acts, it shows us a couple days or some days later that Paul stood before Felix again with his wife, and Luke records that Paul dialogued with them about righteousness and self-control. So what that seems to show us is that Paul both monologued, he heralded the gospel, and he dialogued in his ministry. 
But when you look at what Paul wrote himself, Paul never uses the term for dialogue. He uses the term for heralding the gospel, among others. So heralding the gospel is Paul's common description. So when he talks about his experience in Corinth, when Luke used the word for dialogue, Paul uses the word for preaching. Chapter 1, verse 23, we heralded Christ. 15.11, we heralded and you believed. 2 Corinthians 1.19, Jesus Christ, whom we heralded among you. Chapter 4, verse 5, we didn't herald ourselves, but what we heralded was Jesus Christ as the Lord. So when you think of what was Paul's choice description for what he was doing, it was preaching, heralding. And heralding is what Paul's was Paul's pastoral commission to Timothy and to all preachers. 2 Timothy 4, 2 and 3. Paul says very simply, herald the word. He doesn't say share it or open it up for discussion with other people or bring it up in passing. Paul says to Timothy, announce what God has said. So in summary, the delivery style of a herald is a one-sided, authoritative announcement. And it's one of several ways that's used in communicating the gospel, but it is the chief way. It's what John the Baptist, Jesus, and the disciples did, Paul did, and gospel ministers are supposed to do. And it's that term that's used in 1 Corinthians 1.21, the folly of preaching. So the, meth- the message of the gospel and the method of heralding our folly to those who are perishing. We have to think, Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records a way, a method of communicating the gospel that people think is folly. How is it that being a herald would be repulsive to people? Why would people think that's folly? Well, the act of preaching isn't a forum for discussion or debate. The Greeks love debate. Just like people love to watch a good debate today or to debate themselves. And of course, debate has its uses. It can help people think through matters logically. But the fact that God has appointed Jesus Christ as the judge of the living and the dead, that's not up for debate. If you refuse to believe that, well, you may, but you'll never escape then on judgment day. You see how speaking like that can be offensive to people. Because they can make the charge, well, you think you have the corner on truth, or you're just a Bible thumper, and you've heard all those things before. What could be more offensive than one person standing and monologuing and demanding the submission of other people to a message? That's what we're talking about. And there are even, and many, there are many religious and scholarly folks who are reconsidering the presentation of the gospel. And here's a quotation, a lengthy quotation. Preaching can seem a little one-sided, particularly when the listener disagrees with what the preacher is saying. This is one of the reasons so many find preaching wanting. Preaching that ignores the listener will not seem relevant to the very ones the preacher wants to reach. Perhaps the time has come to encourage greater dialogue in the preparation and presentation of our preaching as a means of involving listeners more fully in the process. This approach is being championed within the emerging church as a way to be more authentic 
in the preaching of what we offer. In contrast to the speeching practiced by traditional preachers, these emergent preachers are looking for a more relational approach that engages the listener in a process of sermon co-creation. At its best, this kind of communication is democratic, humble, and has the potential for exponential impact. You see the charge there? Traditional preachers, they're not democratic, they're not humble, and they're not effective because of the way they preach, because of preaching, because of heralding. Their thought is, you need to be more appealing to your audience, so change the way you preach. And Paul's making the exact opposite point. Chapter 2, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the gospel or the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom in a way that would be appealing to you. Verse 4. My speech, my words there, logos, and my heralding were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. So Paul purposefully avoided certain content and a certain style of delivering that content, lest he make the gospel empty of its power. Chapter 1, verse 17. So there's a wrong message and a wrong method that can short-circuit the gospel ministry. You see, the act of preaching isn't meant to be so much something that is convincing as it is to be something that's humbling. Paul's point when he preached the cross isn't to be convincing. That's why the the Greeks considered it to be folly. The Jews thought it was offensive. Paul's point is that his preaching the cross brings people to salvation, causes sinners to humble themselves before the Lord. So we're not supposed to coming out we're not supposed to come out of preaching thinking this way. That was really riveting. It was a great discussion. I think I'll go back for more. Instead, we're supposed to come away from preaching thinking this. That was truth that I must believe. You see, people don't come to Jesus because they're finally convinced. They come because they are finally willing to humble themselves before God and his claims on their life. Years ago, young David only had a sling against the giant. That really seemed foolish. And it might seem foolish that the gospel is Christ crucified and that the method is heralding. That's foolish to those who are perishing. But those are divinely given the power of God to bring about salvation. And we need to give ourselves to both of those. Father, we pray you'll help us to be mindful of what you have said in your word. And it really shapes how we consider the truth that we hold. It's not something that we are able to wield in such a way as to convince people. It's something that we set forth as what you said, and we call them to humble themselves before you because of who you are. And we pray that you'll help us in our communication of the gospel. We pray that you'll cause people to humble themselves when they hear it preached. We do pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.